Hey, welcome back to Sermon Notes. Michael here alongside Clark and Garland, and as always, Josh, our producer. And here we find ourselves in Holy Week as we've spent the week just considering the last days of Jesus and his earthly ministry. And now we're preparing on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. And in the midst of this, we're continuing our series on the I Am Statements of Jesus that we find in the book of John. And so, Garland, as we think about these I Am Statements, just sort of um, recalibrate us, help us recenter ourselves on the purpose of these statements and how they serve the greater narrative of John and what we know about Jesus. Yeah, John has uh, recorded a, a number, actually dozens of occasions of Jesus saying, ego I me, I am. Um, but but seven of them, he, he ties, we might say, like an, uh, an object with it to make a point, to make an illustration, and uh, they become the famous I am statements. And um, as we've noted many times, this this I am, it's the the name of that Yahweh gives, his covenant name of Israel. And to have Jesus have that name on his lips over and over and over again, and then absorbing all these illustrations and images of who Yahweh was in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, um, it's just a really powerful thing that John is doing. We've chosen to highlight uh, these seven I am statements statements to help us as Jesus followers here at our church to just just get a bigger picture for who he is and um, why he's here in the world. And so we've actually uh, intentionally built the schedule to have this week's I Am statement land on this Sunday. So uh, here we are, uh, Easter Sunday with chapter 11, I Am the Resurrection in the life. So good timing on our part. Yeah, for sure. And so Clark, as we look at John chapter 11, it's not the normal Easter passage. We don't usually year in and year out say, oh, it's Easter. We must be in John 11. Yeah. Um, how is this all going to fit together? What's happening in John chapter 11 that, that is the perp- or the occasion of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life? Yeah, that's a great question, Michael. I think part of what you have here is the incarnation um, being made manifest as Jesus interacts with a real family going through some brokenness. And um, they've got a sick brother. His name is Lazarus. His sisters are Mary and Martha. They're in this little village, Bethany. And uh, the, it's interesting, the detail that, that John gives us. And it, it would appear that Jesus has known them for a while um, because in multiple places it says that he loved Lazarus. And so there seems to be a relationship ongoing that Jesus has with this family. And so we get to drop into this scene where Lazarus is sick and um, and they're concerned about him to the, that he they may lose him or he may pass on from this world. and um, and they're wondering a little bit why Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry, it seems like, to get there. and uh, and Jesus hears the you know what's going on with him. He makes his way to the town by the time he gets there. Um, he's been dead for four days, and um, there's there's a lot of crying, there's weeping, there's concern. There seems to be some frustration with Jesus because he doesn't seem to be uh, too concerned, but then it turns, and we see some incredible emotion and weight of empathy, and even this, maybe this indignation towards death come out of Jesus as he interacts with this family. And uh, I, you might call this, uh, I think I may, you may hear this in, in our teaching, but it, it's the prequel, um, this side of the resurrection of Jesus. We get a human example um, in this family. 
And so um, there's a variety of responses that come out of this, but in this 44-verse section in chapter 11, um, it's just an amazing picture of Jesus' empathy, his compassion, and him asserting himself as the one who has conquered and will conquer death. And so that's, that's basically what's going on in the narrative as we kick it off. Yeah, so in verse 24 of John chapter 11, Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, talking about her brother. And Jesus replies to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, and then he goes on to say, whoever believes in me will not die um, and then he asked her, do you believe this? And so, Clark, what's behind that statement, I am the resurrection? What's Jesus communicating about himself? Yeah, I mean, it would appear, and if you take this along with the resurrection event itself, he's not just only performing a sign to prove that he has power over death. He then becomes the illustration himself, as we will see later in John chapter 20. Um, I am the resurrection. He is the source of all life, and he has power over death. And you see, this isn't actually the only time that someone has been raised from the dead. Right. There's, there's other instances of that. You even see that in the book of Acts as well with the apostles. Um, but for this family in this time, in this place, um, in the life of his ministry, he's, this is just one more step to asserting himself as the I am and uh, to address um, our great enemy, which is death. And I think there's probably likely it's bigger than just um, what happens to a person when they physically die. Uh, part of, I think, what he's claiming here, too, I am the resurrection and the life, is, is the fullness of spiritual experience. I want to give you this side of heaven. Um, I'm the source of that, too. And only when you know where you stand with me related to when you do die, can you really experience fullness of life right now too? And so I think it's much more than just a, just this, uh, this time thing related to eternal life in the future when we pass. There's, it's, it's a combination of things going on here. Yeah, I appreciate and You guys can add something to well, that. Well, I appreciate you like that, well, you, that you brought up the fact that this is not the only time that um, someone is restored to life in the Bible or even in the Gospels. But uh, Garland, don't you think the geographic and time proximity to the resurrection of Jesus? He's in Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. He's within just days of going to the cross and himself being resurrected. It adds more weight to the Lazarus story. Right. We're going to see that because of this event, the Pharisees get all the more eager, actually, to uh, silence Jesus. This is this is seemingly one of the final straws um, because the word the word gets out about this, and they're like, "This this is a real problem." And one of the issues that they're having is uh, Martha's question. You know, her her response to Jesus saying, "I am the resurrection," is an appropriate Jewish response. Um, yeah, of course. In, in in the last days, there's going to be this big momentous. A lot of Jews thought there'll be a resurrection of the last days. And Jesus, in, Jesus's insistence that there's something near, actually, and then what the resurrection will prove, what we're going to celebrate this Sunday at Easter, is going to be the, we might say, it's the vindication. It's the, it's the billboard saying Jesus really was right, that we're not just talking at the end of time, that what he is accomplishing in his death and his resurrection 
it is the I, it is Yahweh coming to be with his people, and you must orient to him now, his death and his resurrection. And so, um, yeah, this this issue, this event is going to lead uh, ultimately to the Jews' outrageous anger at him when he's going to walk in the next week. And so this is you know one of many, of course, that we've seen, yeah. but this might be the straw that breaks the camel's back in a sense. And they go, we can't have this guy out here. He's saying stuff that's weird. Um, he's doing stuff that's getting attention. This doesn't sound right. You can't say you're the, the bread and the door and the shepherd. He's doing all this stuff that only God can do. And Garland, in, in verse 48 of chapter 11, it actually says, and this these are the Pharisees speaking here, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And you get an insight a little bit into the motive of the Pharisees to kind of keep Jesus at bay. Mm-hmm. There's some control at stake here mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to rule and reign and do what they can do and have freedom from the Romans to, to keep their power. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's an interesting thing. You've got to, Jesus has come to bring life to the world, and they're concerned about maintaining their little kingdom. Yeah. And uh, so there, there, there's some politics at play here. In always, t- isn't it? Yeah, always. <laughs> yeah, always. No doubt. And man, in that passage you just referenced, Clark, Caiaphas, um, who was high priest that year, it says, man, he makes one of the most profound, unintentionally profound statements in the Gospel of John because he says in verse 50, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Hmm. And he's thinking of the nation of Israel being protected from this dangerous street preacher from Galilee. Mm -hmm. But man, what a statement, because in fact, Jesus, the one man does die so that all of us who place our faith in him can avoid eternal separation from God. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing comment, the, the way it's phrased even. It's, it's, it's got gospel language in it from someone who hasn't or doesn't understand the gospel. I wish I could be yeah. accidentally profound. Yeah. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm largely accidental. But yeah, that's true. Very little profundity in what I do, yeah. It seems to escape you. Yeah. Hey, guys, I wanted to just bring this up and get your thoughts on this as well. Um, you know, in the moment when Jesus speaks forth, he looks up to the Father, and he, he prays to the Father. He understands the bigger moment as he raises Lazarus here, and this is in uh, basically 40 to 44 here. Um, and he wants the people to see this event so that God is glorified. They understand who he is. They understand that the pivot word that, in, that, that brings you into this new kingdom living is this idea of belief. Um, but he speaks out to a man in a tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And in one of my small groups um, this week, we discussed that. What does that even mean for Lazarus? Could he hear him? Um, how did Jesus supernaturally reset this biological experience for Lazarus so that his body could hear and he could walk again. And the scene we have here is interesting. He comes out and he's got his face wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus says, unbind him from being bound in those um, those funeral clothes, if you will, and let him go. And yet as we move into the resurrection scene in John 20, we get a different scene. Uh, there's a different tomb and there's not a dead man in it, but it's empty. Yeah. 
And so as we consider the illustration of Lazarus, we have to consider the greater illustration of Jesus' claim to be the resurrection because he raised himself from the dead. Yeah. And um, and so we get that scene in John 20. Maybe even seeing the contrast, uh, you know, big giant dorks like me looking at the research of how they wrapped people in grave clothes. It was very tight. I mean, it wasn't like this was a sheet thrown on top like we see it like in our uh, crime movies. You know, this was a, they would wrap them very tight. They're trying to preserve the body as best as possible. Uh, so Lazarus comes out, we might say, He's been resuscitated to life, but he's still wrapped tightly in his grave clothes. I see him shuffling a yeah, little he, bit. He would have a hard time. Actually, move. one of the one of the uh, historians right on this was talking about it would be nearly very difficult to walk. This would be a slow event. Him trying to get out there, not quite comical, but like you have to put yourself there, and that's going to be remarkably different than what we're going to see with Jesus's uh, resurrection. And there's a reason John is highlighting that difference for us. So Michael, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, it's actually, it's, it's John and Peter in John's account in verse in chapter 20, who get to the tomb. And he says in verse six, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And so it does seem that John goes to great lengths to point out that Lazarus' face was covered and to point out that the face covering of Jesus was not just removed but folded up as if to say Jesus is finished with this. He's not going to need this anymore. And in a less theological way, we were talking in a small group that if you want to help your kids become like Jesus, they need to make their bed and put their clothes away. Oh, every, every yeah. parent just jotted that down. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Yeah, that's a free Jeez. one. Yeah. <laughs> Lazarus didn't get that, but Jesus did. Oh, man. He put things in order. Yeah. Well, you can only get that to, on sermon notes. To take it, to take it more theologically. <laughs> yeah. um, Which we should. Yeah. So if you think about it, so all these points John is making, um, we... I think for many of us, we're used to the story. We know about Easter. It's almost, you know, it's familiar to us and we can get lulled to sleep a bit by it. Um, and, and our hope, I guess, I guess for us this, this, this Easter is to, to be re-amazed as we celebrate Easter. Think about it. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Um, Jesus has been talking about his hour in the Gospel of John. His hour is coming. His hour is coming. He's warning them. He's going to stare down uh, the cross. And they still don't buy it. I mean, even, even when he comes to get arrested, they pull out swords and they, they are attacking and anyone standing there, as the clouds come in and darken the day, as the Romans stretch him out on that cross, uh, as they flog him to near death, uh, there's a reason he dies before the other the other ones crucified because they I mean they beat him to death. Um, nobody standing there is thinking, "Oh yeah, this this is the great victory. This is how we're going to beat sin and death." Um, it. A cross was a sign of humiliation and shame, not honor and glory. It was a sign of defeat, not victory. Uh, it was a symbol that you had lost power, not gained power. And yet Jesus, as we pointed out last week, is is headed there on his own will. Like he's he knows what he's securing in this. And but nobody would have seen that on Friday, mm. on Good Friday, and there would have been no way to like I. There's a reason they're hold up scared. Like even John Garland, uh, I would note, from what we know, because of Jesus' own words to his mother and to John, he was the only one standing near the cross of his followers. Yeah. That, that, that we know documented. Okay. Well, even he peeks into the tomb and it says he saw 
and believed. And, and you're going, this is John. This is inner circle John. This is best friend John. This is the disciple whom he loved John. And there was still this uncertainty as to what this resurrection meant until that moment. Mm-hmm. He looks and he sees and he's not there. The, the Romans like, had, had... He should have got it of all yeah, people. Yeah. They were experts at putting down would-be rebellions and kings and messiahs. And here goes another one. Unless those grave, clo- those grave clothes are folded and the tomb door is open and the tomb really is empty. And if you're a listener to this, if you're a Jesus follower, that's our claim. Like, and if you have, you know, if we can go through the motions of that, or if we hadn't thought about that in a while, that's a power. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that not just in a Lazarus way, shuffling out covered in grave clothes, but as you said, Michael, these are done. Um, that, uh, that that's the most dramatic statement, the most dramatic claim, or the most dramatic historical event in the history of the universe. And uh, that, I mean, yeah, it's Easter. Amazing. Like we should get excited yeah. uh, over and over again thinking about this. Um, and we were talking earlier, Michael. That's not what anybody was expecting, right? Yeah, no, no one there would have had a category for this. That that there could be a resurrection in the middle of the story. The the resurrection was expected at the end of the story by the Jews, not here in the middle of human history. And so hmm. it really is the event that changed everything. It's the reason we worship on Sunday. Every Sunday we gather to remember that Sunday that that stone was rolled away and our crucified King was raised to life. So Clark, besides Sunday worship. Yeah. What are according to the New Testament even what what are some implications of the resurrection that whether our listeners are preparing for Easter or reflecting back on Easter mm-hmm. um, what are some things that are different or that we take away from the resurrection of Christ? Yeah, I mean I'm, I think I would get as we try to let scripture interpret scripture and speak into that a little bit. Um, I mean one of your best chapters that everyone needs to understand and know where to go to is 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul he unpacks this on so many levels, um, just kind of a, a personal theological level related to those who've passed away. But he looks to a greater day as well, um, when all of death will be put at rest. And so the resurrection event is the beginning of that door being closed on death. Um, it, one of the implications in light of that is this is supposed to bring comfort to believers. It's also in First Thessalonians 4, he speaks of this as well. Um, for those who have had loved ones fall asleep or pass away, um, that um, that there is hope after death for those who are in Christ. And we don't understand all of what that means and looks like, but we often comfort one another with those words when we're at a memorial service or a funeral service of a loved one. So that's one implication. Garland? Yeah, and if... It- Think about how Paul will work this theme. Let's go just like, just go read Romans 6, 7, and 8 and watch him say you were crucified with Christ, but you were raised with Christ to new life. Like there are those implications of comfort and and our, our security, but it's almost like for the gospel writers, for Paul, they're going, we're walking on new ground here, like in a world that is constantly at, uh, in brokenness and war and, and injustice and pain, we're like light pushing out from the tomb. You're joining the team that knows they've already defeated the great enemy. And so just even the sheer confidence that that should bring, not just to our church time or at a funeral, but like 
Monday morning at 930 in the meeting, like I'm on that team or when the political issue rises up that looks scary and intimidating, I'm on the team that's already won, but we won through a cross and an empty tomb. It's just, it changes everything about how we should uh, approach what it means to follow Jesus, the crucified and risen King. And so just, I mean, implications, we like, in first, Everything's the implication of this, right? Like, well, in golly. First Peter, he says that the resurrection is the source of what we call our living hope, mm-hmm. which means if, you know, this side of eternity, if you will, the possession of eternal life should give us this daily living hope that has deep-seated joy that, that lives above circumstance even. I think that's an implication, yeah. one application. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, if this isn't true, you're still dead in your sins. And so he connects the resurrection to the completion of the narrative that the atonement began to cover our sin and pay for it. And so for all of our listeners and us here in the podcast room, uh, trying to fight sin well and surrender those things to Jesus, the resurrection power is what gives us the power to struggle well and to see him help us turn and repent from sin even. Uh, on a daily basis. And so I think that's another big implication. And then, you know, Michael Garland, as we close, I'd like to remind people, one of the, um, again, just just more of a pastoral note, um, by name, uh, the only two, from what I can gather in John 11 and in uh, John 20, uh, Thomas is in both scenes. And we know Thomas is the doubter, right? Doubting Thomas. And so he was present and around and noted in John chapter 11 as Lazarus as part of that, that scene being raised. Um, but Jesus actually circles back, back around to him in John 20 and presses him because he's still not buying it until he sees him, he sees his hands, he sees the scars. And Jesus actually commands him and says, stop doubting and believe. <laughs> and so I think Thomas at that point knew that Jesus loved him. He gave him some space to be a skeptic and to question things. And out of Thomas's mouth comes, my Lord and my God. And it feels like Thomas had this breaking point where his skepticism, good question asking, it just, he finally knelt down, knelt down before the Lord and said, this is real. He is the great I am. He's the resurrection and the life. And so I, my guess, guys, is that in our church and those even this past week, that we've all battled some doubt, wondering, did this event really happen? Is it history? Is it something made up to help us cope with a life that we just can't handle? Or did it really happen? I think Thomas believed it at this point. And he understood that this is his Lord and his God. And so I think it's a good word for all of us um, as we celebrate the resurrection. Yeah, that is good, yeah. Clark. Yeah, so our hope and prayer for all of you, our Sermon Notes listeners, is that on Easter morning, when someone from the platform says, he is risen, and you respond, he is risen indeed, that you believe it and that you feel it and that you're excited about it, so excited about it that it changes how you live and could even potentially impact people around you um, as you live out this good news that our king is risen. He has conquered sin and death. And as Garland has said um, just a few minutes ago, um, we can live confidently. 
confidently we can live in light of the resurrection, not just on Easter, but every day. And so we'll be back to talk more about the I Am statements next week. Until then, hope you have a great Easter, and we'll see you next time on Sermon Notes.